0: If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to the book of James, It'll be in chapter three today, and we're going to be looking at the first 12 verses. So uh, Pastor David and I have been uh, preaching through James down in La Pine. Pastor Brent's been pre- preaching through first Peter up here. Um, so you get a little little break for first Peter today, and uh, we're going to dive into James chapter three. So I think it was a couple weeks ago or a few weeks ago that pastor david was last here uh preaching out of james chapter two uh talking about the connection between faith and works uh, in other words the connection between between saying that you believe the gospel uh, and actually living like you really do believe the gospel uh james is a is a very seemingly practical book um Some people read James as a book that just tells us how to try harder to be better. And that's not the message of the book of James. Uh, James is working hard as we look through a gospel lens to show us how belief in the gospel leads to living as if the gospel is actually true. As an example, uh, if you woke up this morning and you came here and you put on a coat, it's because you looked outside and you thought, man, it's really cold. It was 17 at my house when I went outside. Um, if you didn't wear a coat, it's because you didn't believe it was all that cold, right? Pretty, pretty simple. We, we all live according to how we believe. Some, sometimes there can be a disconnect in what we say we believe and how we live. But, but at the end of the day, we all live exactly according to what we believe. So today, James is going to address uh, an issue that will probably nail all of us in some way. So we'll apologies in advance for ruffling some feathers, but it's James who's ruffling the feathers, hopefully, and not me. Um, well, A pastor a friend of mine once was asked, a very, very wise man was asked, how, how do you know when you've begun to preach the gospel? And his response was that you haven't begun to preach the gospel until you've begun to rub up against people's lives. And what he meant by that is not that we work hard to just offend people or rub up against your life, but but when we preach the truth of the gospel, it should offend us in some way. It should come against our sensibilities. It should cause conviction in us. And in today's passage, it's my hope and my prayer that that we will be not condemned, but that we will be convicted by the truth in God's word. So James, chapter three, the first. Two verses we're going to start off with says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man able to bridle his whole body. So James, right out of the gate, he's talked to us so far about how to live with trials, these various trials, telling us to count it all joy. Uh, He's talked to us about how we treat one another uh, within the assembly, the gathering of the local church, uh, and that we shouldn't prefer uh, the rich people over poor people, for example. Uh, We shouldn't judge people by the way that they look. Uh, And he's talked to us about the connection of faith and works, that that a true, authentic belief in the gospel will lead to a life that shows that that belief is true. And now, as we get into chapter three, he, he nails the teachers. And he says, you shouldn't want to be a teacher. There are not many things in the Bible that keep me awake at night, but this is one of them. Because I stand up here, like all of your pastors, we stand up here week in and week out, um, doing the best that we can to deliver to you uh, biblical truth. We we try to shy away from our own opinions, uh, those kinds of things. We labor throughout the week uh, so that what we bring to you, hopefully week in and week out, is biblical truth. And here James just says, yeah, you shouldn't want to do that. Um, because um, you know that those who teach, he says, will be judged with greater strictness. I don't know how he knows this, but I'm just taking James's word at this, that, that he knows something that I don't know. That there's a greater strictness uh, for those who teach the word. Back in James's context, it was a very prominent thing to be a teacher. It was a very prominent thing in society. People would, would follow their teachers around, right? So, so he's saying really that you shouldn't desire a position of prominence because along with that prominence, along with somebody who amasses a following, along with exerting influence, that comes along with that a stricter judgment because you have some responsibility and some culpability as a teacher for those that follow you, those that listen to what you would have to say and those who would heed what you have to say. There's a reason for this, and we're going to see today that our words are powerful, and it's no small thing to have an influential or a prominent role where you teach others about who God is and what God says. It's a weighty responsibility, and I know that I speak for all of the pastors when I say that we feel this every week. We feel the weight of what we do. If this is the case, if what James is saying is true, then why in the world would any of us sign up for this? Why, why would I stand here and say, sign me up for double judgment or stricter judgment? Why would we sign up for that? Again, we don't take it lightly to do what we do week in and week out, endeavoring to speak the mind of God. I was reading an article a couple of weeks ago about a, a well-known pastor who probably many of you have heard on the radio. I'm not going to say who it is, but somebody that you would know if I dropped a name very prominent person. And in, in an interview, um, this guy told the radio host, he says that you should get into preaching. And the radio host says, well, why, why should I get into preaching? And he said, well, because it's tax-free, which isn't entirely true. But like there, there are some benefits that way that the IRS affords churches and, and pastors um, and things like that. And this, this very well-known radio preacher tells this radio host, you should get into preaching, not not because you get to herald the word of God, not not because you get the responsibility to tell people about who God is, not because you get the honor of standing before people and speaking the mind of God, but because you get a tax break for it. And I read that and my heart just kind of sunk because, um, I mean, it would be sad for anybody to say this, but particularly somebody who has a wide influence. His reason for getting into preaching is because it's tax free. And I would say that this particular man doesn't understand the great responsibility that it is to teach God's word. God is concerned that we get this right, and so we should be concerned that we get it right too. And so James starts out by addressing teachers. Now, you might be sitting here thinking, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to settle in today, and, and this is we're, we're going to nail the teachers today. Well, you're not off the hook if you're not a teacher, and we'll get to that here in a moment. Now that James has picked on the teachers, he goes on to say that we all stumble in many ways. So he kind of nails the teacher's Don't sign up for a position of influence, authority, prominence, because there's a greater responsibility with it. And if you're sitting here thinking, okay, that's not me, then he says, we all stumble in many ways or we all sin in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble or anyone does not sin in what he says, he's a perfect man or a perfect person able to bridle his whole body. Now, how many of you right now, like, you just feel like you got nailed? Because we, we all say dumb things. Sometimes we all say things that we shouldn't say. We've all been caught in that act. We've all stuck our foot in our mouth uh, at one time or another. When James says we all do this, this is this is all-encompassing. So sometimes, as we're studying the Bible, we have to dig into the original language, in, into the Greek or the Hebrew or the Aramaic to figure out what he's saying. This is not one of those times where we have to dig into the Greek to figure out what he means when he says we all stumble. It means everybody, we all stumble we all say things that we ought not say and the bible backs this up in proverbs 20 verse 9 it says who can say i've made my heart pure i am clean from my sin and that's of course a rhetorical question that nobody can say that is the answer ecclesiastes seven twenty says surely there is not a righteous man on the earth who does good and never sins first john 1 8 says if we say that we have no sin we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us Proverbs ten nineteen says, when words are many, transgression is not lacking. Who can relate to that? But it goes on to say that whoever restrains his lips is prudent. And so what we're going to spend the majority of our time today looking at is the sin as it pertains to the tongue. James goes on in verse 3 to say that, but if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. So James here gives us a couple of positive examples and a negative example of what he's trying to get at. So the first positive example is a horse's bit. Now, I'm not a horse guy. Um, I know I probably look like a horse guy, but I'm not. I've ridden a horse a couple times in my life. I I don't know. But but I know that when I get onto the horse and there's a bit in the horse's mouth and I grab the reins, I pretty much, barring any disasters, can control that horse wherever I want it to go and however fast I want it to go, whatever direction I want it to go. And a horse is a huge animal. James also uses example of a, of a ship. Think of a cruise ship. I don't know how many of you have been on a cruise. I've never been on one, but think of a giant cruise ship. And at the end of the day, that cruise ship is controlled by a very small rudder relative to the size of the boat. And it's the will of the pilot says, we're going to go this way. We're going to go that way, right? Straight ahead, whatever it is, that rudder controls the ship. And then James uses this negative example of the tongue saying that it's a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. We're, we're coming off of a, a particularly bad fire season here in Oregon. Much of our state was on fire not that many months ago. And those fires, they don't start as big fires. right? They don't start just big, have a million acres on fire. They start very small. They start with a spark sometimes. And they grow sometimes very rapidly into a huge blaze now we have some ability to control horses we have some ability to control ships but but we don't have a whole lot of ability to control wildfire right we, we have some ability to fight it some ability to protect ourselves against it but at the end of the day the fire is going to do what the fire is going to do and there's not a whole lot that we can do to mitigate the damage caused by a wildfire james compares the tongue to a forest set ablaze by such a small fire so a tiny thing we would say with tremendous power. James goes on, verses seven to thirteen. He says, "The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting a fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue." And so James goes into this kind of scathing rebuke on the tongue. He says that the tongue is a fire. He says that the tongue stains the body. He says that the tongue sets on fire the course of life. He says the tongue, in fact, is set on fire by hell and that it can't be tamed. It's a restless evil and it's full of deadly poison. James says that with our tongue, we we bless the Lord and we curse our brother. And he says these things ought not to be so. And so I ask the question, why why is James making such a big deal of this? I've said things in my life that I wish I could take back. Sometimes things that maybe aren't all that big of a deal. Other times, maybe it's a bigger deal than I think it is. I'm sure you've done the same thing. Why, Why is James making such a big deal of something that's so common? And maybe that's part of why he's making a big deal, because we can all relate to this. We've all said things that we ought not say. James, as I already mentioned, has been dealing with the outworking of our faith as it pertains to a few areas, as it pertains to trials, as it pertains to how we treat one another, particularly those who aren't like us. And now he's dealing with our faith as it works itself out in our life pertaining to the things that we say pertaining to the words that we use. He's reminding us that authentic faith in Christ is not about following rules, but following Christ with an authentic faith will show itself in how we live our lives, particularly as we live our lives as Christians for the good of others and the glory of God. Jesus talks about in Matthew twelve thirty three to 37, he says this, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. The tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, he says. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. And so Jesus is making a connection about the things that we say and the condition of our heart. The things that come out of our mouth are a natural outflow of the condition of our heart. Just like I said earlier, we, every single one of us lives exactly according to what we believe. Every single one of us speaks exactly according to what's inside of our hearts. And the words that we use are an outflow of what's inside of us. And Jesus tells us that, that by those words we'll be justified. In other words, our, our faith will be proven to be either authentic or will be condemned. Our faith will be proven to lack authenticity. So at the end of the day, there's a disconnect between the one who professes faith in Christ yet can't get a handle on what comes out of their mouth. Or I might say in our day and age, the, the power of our thumbs. Right. Scroll your social media feeds. Look at, look at what you yourself have maybe posted on social media. I was texting with some friends yesterday and it occurred to me kind of last night, like I said something in that text thread. I typed something in that text thread that I I probably shouldn't have said. It didn't seem like a big deal at the moment and and just trying to have some fun and crack a few jokes. And later that day, as I'm thinking about this message, I'm realizing, you know what? I, I inadvertently disparaged a person. In what I, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. I don't believe that James here is demanding outright perfection in the words that we say because that would be an impossible standard to which we would live up to. But at the same time, James is showing us that as Christians, we ought to live differently and our lives ought to look different than those who are not Christians. And one way that happens is in the things that we say. One way that happens is in the words that we use. And James talks about that our our words can build, they can build people up, or they can destroy. Our words can bless or curse, they can encourage or discourage, and ultimately the words that we use can bring life to people or bring death to people. So why again is James making such a big deal of this? James is making a big deal of this because as Christians, we ought to point people to life. We ought to desire to build people up. We ought to desire to encourage and to bless people with our words, not to destroy, not to curse, not to break down, not to bring death. And as I think about, for me... whether things ever make it out of my mouth or not, which I'm pretty good at holding my tongue at times, not always. But you might be shocked at the things that go on inside my head. You might be shocked at the things that I want to say that I don't say. And I, like, I'm not taking credit for not saying those things because they're still up here in my brain trying to get out, right? <laughs> maybe Maybe you're the same way. And so again, the things that come out of our mouth really is an outflow of the condition of our heart. And so James is making a big deal of this because as Christians, the words that we use, the way that we use our tongue says something to the watching world about who Christ is. And we have an opportunity every single day, maybe every moment of every day to show people something about who Christ is by what we say. And so we have to question, like, did, did what I just say a few moments ago in that interaction with a coworker, with a friend, did, did that show somebody who Christ is? Did that build somebody up? Did that encourage them or did it destroy them and, and bring them down? James says that if we destroy and we bring people down or we don't encourage, we don't point people to Christ in our words, that ought not to be so for the Christian. Now I'm not standing up here with the endeavor to like just drop a hammer on everybody and make you feel bad for maybe what you said on the car ride here uh, or what happened in your home last night. I don't, I don't think that's James's desire either. When, when we... Preach through the Bible, we, we always endeavor to leave people with the hope of the gospel, right? We, we don't want to promote a, a try harder to be better type of a message because at the end of the day, you can't try hard enough to be good enough, and neither can I, and that, that's why Jesus had to come and do what he did because I can't try hard enough. Hard as I may, it's not good enough, and hard as you may try, it's not good enough at the end of the day. And so the last thing that we want to do is just end right here and say, like, watch what you say when you go out the door. Because that's going to leave a burden on you. And you might not even make it home before you say something that you ought not to say. And then you're going to feel bad about it. You're going to feel guilty about it. And that's, there's no gospel hope in that. The words that we use are a reflection of our faith and more so a reflection of the God in which we believe. And so this is why this is such a big deal to James. Now, part of what we try to do week after week after week is, is that we try to bring the gospel to bear. And sometimes in the Bible, depending on the passage, the gospel is just super explicit, not hard to connect the dots, not hard to find. Other times, maybe in a passage like this, it's a little bit more difficult to find the truth of the gospel. So, so we sit here and James is saying, you know, be careful with what you say. Your words are powerful. Your words can, can bring life. They can bring death. Okay, great. I can understand that because I've, I've lived both sides of that. I've spoken words of life. I've spoken words of death, right? I, I get it. Well, now what, where, where's the hope of the gospel in this? And so I want to try to connect a dot here because James is writing while he's not bringing out in this particular passage explicitly the truth of the gospel. It, it's implicit in this passage. James would have no doubt been writing this through a gospel lens, and so I want to take a moment and try to try to look at that gospel lens. And so hopefully this can make a little bit more sense from a perspective of who Christ is and what he's done for us. John chapter one, verses one to five. In the beginning was the word, capital W. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and that life was the light of men, the light of shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, Your Bible, like mine, probably has a, has a capital W when it's referring to the word because it's referring to a person, to a person. This is kind of a mirror of Genesis chapter 1 that says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And do you know how God created the heavens and the earth? He, he didn't snap his fingers. He, he didn't you know, wiggle his nose. Anything like that? He spoke. He spoke into nothingness and he said, let there be. And you know what happened? There was. I can't speak into nothingness, something, right? God spoke into the nothingness. He spoke into the void and he said, let there be. And he created. And John tells us that when that happened, back in the beginning was the word, capital W, This is a reference to Jesus Christ. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Jesus was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Jesus. And without Jesus was not anything made that was made. Jesus is the living word. And then John goes on in his gospel a few verses down in chapter 1, verse 14, and says that the word, capital W again, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. And so the word that was from the beginning, the word that created all that there is to see, even things that we can't see, God created through the living word. He spoke life to where there was nothing. He spoke into existence all of creation and then subsequent to that, that living word, Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, stepped down from heaven to earth. He became flesh and he dwelt among us. The living word dwelt among you and I. Author and pastor Brian Chapel says that God's word is powerful because he chooses to exercise his power through it and to be present in it. By his word, God brought the world into being, Genesis chapter 1. And Jesus is the word by whom all things were made, John chapter 1, and who continues sustaining all things by his powerful word, Hebrews chapter 1. The capital W word uses his lowercase w word to reveal his person and to carry out all of his purposes. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Think about it this way. God created the world. Everything that we see, including humanity, and then those humans very quickly rebelled against their creator. Genesis chapter 3. Three chapters into history as we know it, we see the creation rebelling against the creator. That took no time at all. And then, a time later, God sent his one and only son to his rebellious creation. And what happened? How did that go? The word became flesh, dwelt among us. God stepped into human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And the rebellious creation continued to rebel against its creator, ultimately nailing him to a cross. Now, what makes this story particularly crazy? Like, that's crazy enough if the story were to end there. But what makes this even more crazy is that Jesus knew what he was getting into. Jesus knew that as he stepped into human flesh, and dwelt among us, that the creation would rebel against him and kill him. He knew that it was going to happen, yet he did it anyway. Knowing this, what kinds of things did Jesus say when he was with us? What kind of things did the living word say? What words did the living word use when he dwelt among us? He he didn't come down mad about what was about to go down. He didn't come down pointing a finger at us saying, y'all better get it together. He didn't come down to condemn. He didn't come down to to get us into trouble. Jesus didn't come to tell us how badly we messed up. He didn't come to scold us. He didn't come to tear us down. He didn't come to reprimand us. He didn't tell us to get our act together. He didn't come to lay down the law, all of which we would rightfully deserve if that were the case. But the Bible tells us that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Bible tells us that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Ultimately, Jesus came to call a dead people to life. He came to call us into relationship with him. Not not out of anger, not out of wrath, but by his grace and because he loves us. And he used his words to speak to us humanity, the dead humanity. He used his words to speak to us life. And because this is true, for followers of Christ, our our words matter all the more. The way that we use our tongue matters all the more. Does that make sense as we now think about this through a gospel lens? James isn't trying to lay down the law for us and just, you know, watch your mouth. As we think about this through the lens of the gospel, who Christ is and what Christ has done for us, what we say matters. The fact that we speak life to people versus death, it matters. Controlling our tongue matters. Living out our faith in an authentic way matters. Ephesians 5, 1-2, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I said earlier, as Christians, our lives ought to look different than those who don't profess faith in Christ. And sadly, for many professing Christians, our lives don't look a lot different from those who profess faith in Christ. But an authentic faith given to us by God will work itself out in the way that we live. Namely, as we consider today's passage in the things that we say, the way that we use our tongue. In the passage before, Paul calls us to the imitators of God. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 25, he says this, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. And again, the Apostle Paul isn't just laying down the law saying, try harder to be better. But as we're reminded of the gospel, as we're reminded of who Christ is and what he's done for us, that ought to cause us to seek to do the same as much as in our ability to do so for those around us. And so I would challenge you to consider this morning how you use your words. Do you use your words to speak gospel truth to people? And what I'm not saying is that are you standing on a street corner with a bullhorn or a sandwich board or something like that, shouting at cars going by to turn or burn. I'm not talking about that kind of thing at all. But are we speaking life to people? The apostle Paul tells us to let no corrupting talk come out of our mouth. He tells us to give grace to those who hear us. And then he makes this connection of not grieving the Holy Spirit of God by whom we were sealed for the day of redemption. When corrupting talk comes out of our mouth, when we don't give grace to those who hear us, when bitterness abides, when wrath abides, when anger abides, when we clamor and slander against others, when we have malice, when those things make their way out of our mouths, it grieves the Holy Spirit of God. And he reminds us to be kind and to be tender-hearted. Easier said than done. But the reason that we can be kind and that we can be tender-hearted is because we remember that Christ forgave us. And if I remember that Christ forgave me, how can I withhold forgiveness from anyone? If Christ has forgiven me of all of my wrongdoings, all of my thoughts, even the things that, that maybe stopped before they came out of my mouth, Christ has forgiven me for the evil thoughts that I've had? How can I not forgive someone else? How can we not be kind and how can we not be tenderhearted in light of the gospel? The way that we deal with one another is informed by the way that Jesus has dealt with us, or at least it should be. The way that we deal with one another should be informed by the way that Christ has dealt with us. As we believe and understand the gospel, one of the ways that it shows is in how we treat people including how we control our tongue and how we use our words either to bring death or to bring life. And so my encouragement to all of us, myself included this morning, is that we would endeavor to be people that bring life through our words, knowing that that our tongue can set a forest ablaze, knowing that the devil works overtime, it seems like, sometimes in the use of our tongue. And so remember who Christ is, remember what Christ has done for you, as you speak to those around you, bringing not death, but bringing life and bringing the truth of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we're grateful for who you are. We're grateful to be reminded of how much you love us, so much so that in our rebellion against you, that you stepped into human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And that Jesus came to seek and to save us lost rebels. What a glorious truth that is, Father, because your word tells us that of our own inclination that we would not seek you. Of our own inclination, we would rebel against you. And so, God, we're thankful that you have done for us something that we could and wouldn't do for ourselves, that you have come after us, lost and broken rebels, us sinners. God, may we be reminded this morning of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we go about our week this week, Help us to be people that seek to speak life. Help us to be people that seek to give grace to those that hear us. Help us to be people that seek to shine the light of the gospel in dark places, in our community, in our homes, in our families, in our neighborhoods, everywhere we go and in all that we do. Father, help us to be people that would show others who you are and what you've done for them through Jesus Christ. And we ask it in his name. Amen.